0: I don't know about y'all, but I love March Madness. I don't normally watch basketball, even though I played basketball when I was in high school. Uh, But when March Madness comes around, the NCAA tournament, it's just fantastic. Because I just kind of think it's sport in its purest form. Because you got all these amateur athletes that are out there, and they are really good and really passionate. And you get the 64 uh, teams together to see who's the best in the entire country. It's a big deal. And so in March, I was watching, of course, like I do every year, this, this tournament. And then there's the Cinderella team that comes around, it seems like, once every other year. And this year, the Cinderella team was Loyola Chicago, the Loyola Chicago Ramblers. How many of y'all remember that? The kind of Yeah, okay, some of you are into that too. Uh, They've they made it to the tournament for the first time in 33 years. That's a long time. And then when they got into the tournament... People thought, well, they're going to be out immediately, they're not that good, and they made it to the Elite Eight. So it's the first time in 33 years they make it, and then when they get to the tournament, they actually get to the quarterfinals of the tournament, really big deal. And uh, of course, the players deserve a lot of credit, and the coaches, of course, deserve a whole lot of credit. But some credit was also given to this one lady in particular, a 98-year-old nun, Sister, Sister Jean sister, Jean Dolores Smith. How many of y'all remember that? Kind of a kind of a big deal. And she was sort of the spiritual mom to the, to the team and the chaplain to the team. And uh, earlier in the year, she hurt her hip. Actually, she broke her hip. But she still made it a point to get in her wheelchair and, and go to their conference finals where they won. And then she went to all of the different championship uh, or the different NCAA tournament games. And those were away games. And She was always there and praying for them, and I want to read something to you from kind of a a national source. I believe this is from the New York Times. She asks for God's protection, for God's protection for the players. She asks for the referees to call fouls justly. She asks that the Ramblers execute the plays the way they were intended. The prayers are anything but bipartisan. I ask God to be especially good to Loyola so that at the end of the game, the scoreboard indicates a big W for us, she said. And so, and, and that's, you know, that's how our prayers need to be. So as a church, we pray for the Dallas Cowboys. All, and if, hey, pray, yes. No, 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 actually, no, we, we really don't. If you're, if you're a Texan, great, that's fine. do know, whatever. Brad, if, if you're here, sorry. Uh, but anyway, so she loves the team, and she's playing, praying for them, and she's like a spiritual mom, and she's encouraging them and all the rest. And one of the players, uh, Dante Ingram, he said this, He said, I know she's going to be there with us in prayer and cheering us on, and that means a lot to us. And and it really did. You could tell when you're watching, it really meant a lot for her to be there praying for the team. Now, I bring all this up to say it's a good thing when people are there for other people praying for them. And there is something about having a nun or a priest or a pastor or some professional clergy there praying for you. And I don't want to make light of that or, 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 or make make it seem smaller than it than it actually is. It's a big deal. Uh, this last week, I was asked by the fire chief of Georgetown to be a volunteer chaplain. They don't have a chaplain. To be a chaplain for the fire department, and I agreed, and so I'm, at least at this point, unofficially the chaplain of the fire department. And the reason I want to do that is because these guys, they do some really tough things. They're the ones that show up when the kid chokes on a grape and mom finds him dead on the floor and... They're the ones that collect the bodies, and they they have some high-stress situations. And it's a good thing, and people appreciate it, when a a clergy or a nun or whoever in a professional capacity shows up to pray. That's a big deal. But I want to let you in on a secret as a a paid professional. Prayer is, is an amateur event. It's not just for the paid professionals. In fact, let me tell you something else. If you're a paid professional... You've got to be really, really careful to keep prayer an amateur event. Because when you make it anything other than an amateur event, it is not what it was intended by God to be. But I know how people want the pastor or the clergy or the nun to be there, whatever the case is, because there's a mental block in a lot of people's heads. And this is what keeps some people from praying. And the mental block goes like this. Hey, this is prayer. This is connecting with God. He's the supreme president, king of the universe. You don't just barge into his presence in any old way. I mean, you know, really think about it. He's the creator. You don't just come whenever you feel like it and do whatever you want to do and say what you want to say and come anytime you want because that's just not how it's done. If you go to the president, you make an appointment and you are dressed up in a certain way. And there's Certain protocol and expectations that need to be met in advance. And there's, there's got to be a right way and a wrong way to pray. So, since I don't really know the right way and the wrong way, and I, I guess I just kind of need to leave this up to the paid professionals. You know, I guess if my car's about to wreck, I'm going to go, Dear God! But, you know, other than that, i will just let the professionals do the praying. That's kind of how the disciples were, were thinking. That's pretty much what was going on in their minds when one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John the Baptist taught his disciples. The disciples wanted to know how to pray correctly. I mean, most people do want to pray correctly, and part of the motivation for them has to be the same as the motivation for you and me and most people around here, and that would be I want to know how to pray because I want a certain amount of power in my life. I want to unleash divine power in my life to do some incredible things or see some wonderful things happen. And the disciples saw that Jesus was always praying and they saw that he had incredible power and they want in on it too. And they're maybe feeling a little bit frustrated that they haven't been let in on what it is that obviously they're seeing happen in Jesus' life. Because Jesus is on a roll when it comes to his prayers here's what I mean. Sometimes, and most of us, if you've been a Christian for very long, there may be seasons in your life where you just kind of feel like, I'm on a roll. You know, where where you pray and then God just shows up and does something that you didn't know He was going to do, but He did it and you just kind of tied it back to prayer. And uh, for me, that happens every once in a while. It's kind of like, I'll just have a week where it's just kind of yes, yes, yes. And I'll pray and I'll go, Lord, you know, I don't know what's going on. And there's this tangled up situation, and I don't know how to deal with it. And so I feel like the Holy Spirit tells me, just pray. Don't do anything. And then sure enough, a few days later, this happened and this happened and this happened and this got untangled and everything kind of came together. And I know, it was, I, know I was praying. And, and some of you, you've had that experience. And if you've seen somebody else kind of on a roll, you go to them and say, well, what's the key? What's the secret? And you might have gotten these little emails or used to see in the newspaper, here's how you need to pray. Pray this prayer, pass it along to ten friends because here's the formula because this is the way you get power in your life. And so you kind of think, well, if they've got the juice and I don't, I want to know what the secret is. And that's the disciples toward Jesus because he's on a roll, like for years, Sometimes when I pray, you know, it's yes, yes. And then sometimes it's yes. And then there's a no. And then there's a maybe, or here's a conditional thing, but Ernest, you really need to get over here. And then sometimes there's silence and I don't know how to interpret it. And with Jesus, he's just praying and it's boom, 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 boom. Yes, 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 yes. And it's big stuff. He prays for people who are sick to get healed. They get healed. He prays for the dead to come back to life. They come back to life. He prays for the storm to stop blowing and it stops blowing and everybody's life is saved. And and they're seeing Jesus with all this power. And so they're not disappointed because he is an incredible person, very connected to God. But they're also kind of disappointed too because Jesus hasn't told them the secret. They come to Jesus saying, teach us how to pray. You know why they have to come to Jesus to ask him this? Because he hasn't taught them. John the Baptist, he's taught his disciples. In fact, that was sort of the expectation of all the rabbis is that they would teach their disciples, how to pray. You go to the Dead Sea Scrolls that got uncovered about 70 years ago in the West Bank, and you can go through those, and you can see in the Essene community, they have all kinds of prayers for all kinds of situations with all kinds of particular ritual. You do this on this occasion, you say this on this occasion, it's the magic, it's the formula, that's what the rabbis would teach people. Here's how you pray. Here's the formula. Here's what you do. Jesus hasn't told them anything. So they're kind of a little bit frustrated, and they push the envelope a little bit and say, hey, John the Baptist taught his disciples. You haven't taught us. Come on now. Teach us how to pray. And so Jesus gives them the the prayer. And this is sort of the shortened form, the the abbreviated form of the Lord's Prayer. You see it in a fuller version over in Matthew's Gospel. But in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, you've got this abbreviated Lord's Prayer. And here's what he says. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. When you pray, Jesus told them, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone else who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And that's it. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And some of you are thinking, wow, I wish Jesus would come here every Sunday and pray, because then we'd get out a lot earlier. I mean, I just, you know, boom, done. And the disciples again are thinking, well, hey, what's the formula? Uh, what's, I mean, that's, that's kind of brief and almost as if he anticipates the pushback. That's too simple. That's too plain. That's too straight. That's too short. I mean, that's it. In response to, obviously, how they would have responded in their culture, Jesus tells a couple of parables. And uh, here's the first parable that he tells. Suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Now, what a shock, right? The Lord always has shock, shock value in his parables. It's almost kind of humorous because you don't expect a friend to respond that way. But this is a grumpy friend. How many of you have a grumpy friend? All right. Now, don't raise your hands on this. How many of you live with your grumpy friend? Okay? I mean, it's okay. You can have a friend who's grumpy. This is a grumpy friend. Now, this isn't saying that God is like this. You're going to see this is sort of a parable of contrast. If, if, the fa- if you've got earthly fathers that aren't so good, well, how about your heavenly father? So you've got a grumpy friend. What do you think about this other friend? We're not saying that God's a grumpy friend, but in this parable, it's a friend, and it's a grumpy friend. And then it kind of gets even funnier. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. The fact that the first friend just keeps knocking on the door and insisting, I need some bread, I need some bread, I need some, that's what motivates this guy who's been in bed to get out of bed and finally give him what he wants. Now in this parable, uh, Jesus teaches us basically three major lessons, uh, it, uh, the the Three major lessons, I guess, that that teach us something about prayer. And the first is this. God is your friend. You need to know that. That's kind of the biggest point. God is your friend. Because you don't go to a stranger's house or an enemy's house at 2 o'clock in the morning and start pounding on the door. I mean, you can only do that with a friend. If you go to a stranger's house and you're pounding on the door, insisting that they give you something well, they're going to call the cops or they're going to threaten to shoot you or, or something. This is a parable about a friend. The, the second thing that's really important for us to recognize from this parable is that persistence pays off. You keep at it. You keep going. And there's a third, a third thing, and I'll get to it real shortly, but let's just kind of continue here. Jesus starts transitioning to another parable. It's so short it hardly even seems like a parable. He says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And it's interesting that our Lord uses very, very plain, common language when He's talking about, about prayer. And, and that leads us to the third observation, and that is prayer is simple. It, you know, ask, seek, find. These are, these are things we do. You ask, we ask for things all the time. You seek, you do that all the time. You knock, it's pretty simple. It's nothing complicated. God's your friend, you stay persistent. It's not complicated, it's really simple. And then Jesus continues in this parable. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And again, the disciples, they just want to know, how do I pray correctly? That's just that that was the... That was in people's minds. When do I do this? Where do I go? What's the formula? How do I approach all of this? Just, just tell me the rules. And Jesus doesn't tell them the rules, but they're saying we want, we want the rules. And it's funny how even as Christians who ought to know better, we're still kind of looking for some of the rules. What are the unwritten rules? How, How do you do this? How long do you pray? And where do you pray? And what's the best position? And I heard about these three ministers who were kind of arguing with one another over the best position for prayer. Now, they were friends, but they were grumpy friends. And they're in one of these guys' offices, and um, there's somebody working on the telephone in the background. And one of the pastors says, here's the way you do it. I was taught to pray, fold your hands, point to heaven, because that just kind of directs your heart toward God, because heaven's up and that's where he is, and this is the best way. And another one said, no, 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 the only position worth its salt is getting down on your knees. It's a position of humility. And I like that. In our prayer room, if you ever go back there, we have a prayer room that people come to all throughout the week. And in the prayer room, there's a kneeling bench, and there's a cross that's lit up. It's really cool. And I I don't know, for me, it helps me. I like to be on my knees. But this next guy says, well, the only position worth its salt is to be prostrate. Lay down with your face on the ground. It's a position of vulnerability before God. And this is when the telephone repairman kind of chimed in and said, well, the most powerful prayer I ever prayed was when I was hanging by my heels upside down from a telephone pole 40 feet above the ground. Uh, the position isn't spelled out in the scripture. We kind of make things up or we kind of get into routines that maybe are helpful to us. And some of us, we actually have a literal prayer closet or literal room, but I don't think that Jesus was prescribing that when he talks about going to your prayer closet and pray to your father who's unseen. It was a common practice to have a maybe a special place of prayer, but the point is, it's between you and the Father. Not that this is the way you do it and here's the time that you do it. We're not Muslims. We don't have our prescribed way of doing and the prescribed ritual and this is exactly what you pray three times a day and here's the time. No, we're Christians. And this goes back to Jesus. He doesn't give us a bunch of rules. But we still kind of want to know what are the rules. And so I'm going to kind of liberate you from, from the rules. You go, yay, that's what I come to church for. To get liberated from rules. Good! You're in the right church. Okay? Here's what you need to understand when it comes comes to prayer. Uh, Let me put it like this. It's in the words of G.K. Chesterton. He's a rather famous Christian philosopher. He said, Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. I love that. Some of you think, Well, hey, hey, what about Franklin? He says, Benjamin Franklin, anything worth doing is worth doing well. Yeah, okay, pff, he's not the philosopher that G.K. Chesterton was. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly, like golf. If I could only play golf if I hit a par on average, I'd never play golf. But it's worth it to me to go play golf if I'm triple or quadruple bogeying every hole. It's worth doing. If, if, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Badly. Only the things that have to be done to perfection are not exactly necessarily worth doing. Now, we want to do well with whatever we do, but if it's really worth doing, you're going to do it, even if you're doing it badly. Let me give you another illustration. Um, There's this man named Aaron Ralston. That's about 15 years ago. Young man. He was hiking in Utah in this national park you might remember the story he kind of falls into this canyon and he gets his arm trapped between the wall of the canyon and this boulder and he cannot get unstuck so he amputates his his arm his own arm with his good arm he amputates his other arm with a dull pocket knife that's doing it badly that's a terrible way to amputate your arm but if it's worth doing it's worth doing badly Meaning, it's better off to do it badly than it would be to not do it to perfection. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Let me give you another example. Uh, when it comes to inviting people to walk toward Jesus with you, is that something worth doing? Well, yeah. Well, if, if, if it comes right down to it, are you willing to do that badly? Well, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Earlier this week, I was uh, talking to somebody at Anytime Fitness. I go there three, well, four, six times a week, somewhere in there, and you know, 20 times, no, you know, like, you know, it's not that much. But there's this one guy I see like three or four times a week because we happen to be kind of coming and going at the same time in the morning. And I'll just use his name as Jim. That's not his name, but, but I see Jim and uh, at the gym, and uh, I have, I, I usually listen to music or podcasts or something, so I have headphones on and he has earphones in. And so, you know how it is, you go somewhere and you work out, they're doing their thing, and you say hi, and then you say hi, and you might spot each other a little bit, but there's not a lot of interaction. But I know him, he knows me, at least on a first-name basis. So earlier this week, I'm just thinking, man, I want to invite this guy to this Bible study I'm doing over at Mesquite Creek Outfitters, but, you know, got to find the right moment. And that's usually when they're about to start or when they're leaving. So he's about to leave, and I'm about to leave, and so I just I just ask him, and we never have a conversation. And I just I say, hey, Jim, have you ever thought about going to a Bible study that's not at a church? Like, what? And then we just start talking. I say, well, yeah, you know, I'm, he didn't even know what to do because I try not to let people know what I do because if people find out what I do, they don't want to have anything to do with me. And so I, uh, I just say, hey, I'm this uh, volunteer chaplain for the fire department, and I'm also a pastor, you know. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're, and, he, and, he, and he said, when, when I said, do you, have you ever thought about wanting to do a Bible study? At a place that's not at a church, and he's like, "Well, you know, I'm not a religious person, and I don't really do organized religion." And so I say, "Well, so you like disorganized religion then, maybe?" I say, "Well, yeah, maybe that's okay." And then I, and I, and then I told him, "Say, you know, you you look like a meat eating, beer drinking guy. Well, I don't know that that's a nice thing to tell somebody." And he said, "Well, yeah, man, I love beer." And so I tell him about this Bible study in a bar, and then we get to talking, and he's kind of interested, and and I think he might come. And now I've got somebody to pray for now. I bring this up simply to say I don't think that that was done really, really well. You know, this is my first legitimate conversation with this guy. It's like, hey, you ever thought about going to a Bible study, not at a church? That's not a real great way to enter into a conversation. And it's probably not a real kind thing to say, hey, you look like a meat-eating, beer-drinking guy. But it worked. It was done maybe badly. I don't know. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And that will liberate you when you start thinking about the things that really matter. Entering into somebody else's brokenness. Just, you know, yesterday, uh, Ralph Martin, his son, passed away of a heart attack. Uh, and you don't ever at any age want to see your son die. And then when you call him or talk to him and go by and, and somebody's experienced some kind of loss, are the words ever just right? I never come away from anything going, wow, I nailed that one. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly, whether it's entering into somebody else's brokenness or talking to them about Jesus or inviting them to walk with you toward Jesus. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And what Jesus is communicating here about prayer is prayer is one of those things that's just so good no matter how much you might think you've messed it up. You can't destroy it. It's just that good. There's this wonderful verse over in Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 44. Let me read it for you. 42, verses 1 through 4. And it's the Messianic passage. It's one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament that, that prophesies concerning the Messiah. What would the Messiah be like? It's a prophetic text. The sur- Suffering Servant Song. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice. You don't expect that. He's kind of quiet. He's very gentle. Or make it heard in the street. And then the best two lines, the next next verse. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench or extinguish. That means that when our prayer is so dim that it's like a, a a flicker like a candle that's about to go out but hasn't God's not going to do this. He's not going to snuff it out. When a reed is bruised, you know how you know a piece of grass can kind of be bent over and it just it's kind of dangling and it kind of looks nasty and you just want to snap it. I don't know how about you, but when you see that a branch that's kind of like dangling, you just want to snap it. Or when you see uh uh A candle about to go out, you just kind of want to snuff it. That's not how God is. He's super gentle. Even when your prayer is just like a flickering candle, He's still going to listen. He's still going to lean in. And even when your life is broken over to the point where you just don't even know how to pray or what to pray or don't think you can get the words out, God still leans in because a bruised reed He will not break. The late, great Chuck Colson, and he was great, started the Prison uh, Ministry Fellowship and uh, the prison fellowship ministry. And um, when he started this prison ministry that went went national, they chose as their symbol the bruised reed. And this verse, a bruised reed, he will not break. Even when you just feel like you don't even have the words to say, you don't even know where to start, even when it just feels like you're just angry and banging around inside, God somehow takes your words, and he morphs them into something that is beautiful and eloquent. It's... It's like this verse over in Romans where it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with words, with groans that no mouth can utter. Even in your weakness, He's on your side. A bruised reed, He will not break. Um, A flickering wick, He's not going to snuff it out. Ultimately, what it comes down to is not trusting in your own perfection to pull off the prayer, but trusting in the perfection of the, of the one who's receiving your prayer. And no matter how garbled your prayer may be, or imperfect it may be, or twisted as it may be, or dim as it may be, prayer is so good and you're so important to your friend and to your father, you just can't mess it up. It's only the things that you have to do with perfection that should make you nervous. Let me put it to you like this. When I do premarital counseling, and I do some, and when I do somebody's wedding, I will always tell them, don't sweat the details. Don't freak out. This is an amateur event. Nobody is going to mess up your wedding except for me. Uh, because I'm the paid professional. I'm the only one who can mess it up. A wedding is an amateur event. And, uh, love, amore. And if the people are in love and if it's right, then no matter what happens, it's going to be beautiful and it's going to work out. It's going to be great. Uh, in, in my wedding with Gina, there were some imperfections there. One is I showed up. Uh, besides that, there was an ice storm. We got married in the middle of an ice storm, and that wasn't really good. It was January 2nd and one of the worst ice storms to hit Oklahoma like in like a couple of decades And so everything was slick. The the pavement was slick. The roads were slick. Everything was just iced over. So that wasn't perfect. And then in the ceremony itself, when we got to the wedding ring exchange, the wedding ring was too small, and I couldn't get it on my finger. Well, she couldn't. So we were standing there, and she was like, with this ring, i thee wed, and she could not get it on. So I just like, and I twisted it. So it could have been with this ring I me with because I just ended up putting the ring on myself so that was a little bit weird and then there was this time where we actually had a chance to to kneel we had these two kneeling boards set up this is just part of our ceremony and we were going to just say a prayer as a part of the ceremony now before the ceremony you know a few weeks out Gina said Ernest don't write your prayer just pray from the heart I'm going to do the same so okay that's fine but I wanted to write it out she said no don't write it out So I didn't write mine out, and of course I nailed down, and, and, uh, you know, I cried. Okay, it's my thing. And so I'm praying, and then I look over at Gina, and it's her turn to pray. And she unrolled her written (laughs) prayer. And it's like, I saw that, and I thought, is it too late? You know, am I going to be able to trust this person? So anyways, it was just... It, was, it wasn't exactly what I anticipated. Things were a little, little off or whatever, but it was a beautiful thing, and I'll never forget it because you can't mess up a wedding when God has brought the two together, when love's in the middle of it because it's an amateur event. And Jesus says, look, prayer's an amateur event. Here's what I mean. It's not just about the, the extent of your love for God. No, that's not it. You're not the one listening. It's the extent of His love and relationship with you. And here's what you need to know. He's your perfect friend. And he's your perfect father. He's not the grumpy neighbor. And he's not the, the father that withholds good things from his son or even gives him a snake when he asks for a piece of bread. Oh, and by the way, when it comes to the father giving us bread, remember? We, even when we weren't asking for it or pounding on the door for it, God gave us the bread of life. His broken body and shed blood. Now here's the thing. When it comes to prayer, there's not a whole lot of rules, but there is this one relationship. If you're going to really pray and it be powerful, you've got to be in relationship. He needs to be your friend. He needs to be your father. And there's one thing that happens. You, how, how it happens is you receive the Son. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ is, is God extending to you and to me the right hand of friendship. It's extending to you and me the opportunity to be brought into and adopted into his family. And when you know that he's your father and your best friend who loves you even more than you love yourself, then you just sort of barge into his presence even when it's two o'clock in the morning because he's your friend. Let's bow for a word of prayer. I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. or Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to prompt you to pray, okay? I just want you right where you are just to simply pray along these lines that, that your Father's name would be glorified. That the Father and who He is and His character and His nature would just be lifted up in your life. Would you pray for that? And that His name would be glorified in this church and in this community. You can do this. You pray for His kingdom to come. That that up there would come down here into your life. That He would reign really as the King in your life. And not just in yours, but in other people's. That we would do our part. To share the gospel, to share Jesus with others, to bring them into the kingdom. Just pray along those lines. And ask God for your bread, your daily bread. Maybe it's figurative. You're just praying for the bread, the money. Some of us, literally, we need bread. We need a job. You just ask God for that. But not just for yourself. Pray it for other people. You know others that need the bread. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We don't just pray for ourselves. Pray for that other person in need. You know who they are. And then just ask the Lord to forgive you your sins. Maybe prayerlessness. Maybe something you've done or not done. Or an attitude. And ask God to help you to forgive that other person and, and maybe you know exactly who that person is. And pray to the Lord that you would stand strong in Christ, that He, that he, that he would not lead you into temptation, but that actually you would do the other thing. You'd, you'd follow Him where He goes into a life of righteousness. Just pray to the Father that you'd become more and more like the Son in your character and your love. God, thank you for this privilege of prayer. And it is a privilege. May we come to you often as our perfect friend and perfect father. Recognizing we don't need to achieve perfection. That the perfect has come. Jesus came and he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And because of his perfection, we could just barge in. Even at 2 a.m. Make this a house of prayer, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.